Okay, welcome to the Buzz Podcast. I'm Mark Heider. I'm at the QRM Hive in Dallas, Texas, where we're hive talking. And today we have Cynthia Morton on with us. Welcome, Cynthia. Thank you, Mark. And Cynthia is the Executive Vice President of Advion, which was formerly known as NASL. Cynthia, tell us a little bit about Advion and what our listeners should know about you. Sure, I'd be glad to. And first, let me say thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast today. It's a real honor. Uh, so Advion is a, a rebranded name, and it's a combination of two words, advocate and champion. And that's uh, how the Advion members see uh, our organization, that we are an advocate for them. We are a champion for their issues and the issues that they care about and their patients care about. Yeah, we were previously known as the National Association for the Support of Long-Term Care, as you said, NASL, and we're an advocacy organization. We've been around about 34 years advocating for ancillary care companies that provide these services, such as rehab therapy, information technology, or diagnostics. We really support the long-term post-acute care sector. And what I like about Advian and formerly NASL is that you really support the post-acute care system, including skilled nursing facilities where I've worked for about 30 years. So great group. Welcome. We're going to call this session Genie in a Bottle. Okay. Okay. All right. Now I'm going to ask you a mean question first. I'll just spit it out. With the changes, the CMS changes that took effect October 1st, 2023, how would you rate those changes? Zero being unbelievably simple, 10 being unbelievably complex. And why would you rate it? That's a good question. Let's get those mean ones out of the way first, right? I think it's a great question, actually. This could have been a little bit of a sleeper issue. I'd give it an eight or a nine. I think they were highly complex. It was being called by CMS a MDS update. But when you look at the breadth of the changes, it's really more, I mean, yes, it was an update, but it's a pretty comprehensive remodel. That's a nice way of putting it, Mark. You know, I think we had more than 140 changes to items. Some were simple changes, but some were more complex. And then we had the revamping of some of the items. And then the, the big blockbuster, the move from section G to section GG was pretty significant in itself. And it could be that people, you know, were very fixated on the G to GG. And, and even G to GG has a lot of tentacles, right? What I mean by tentacles is it has many implications for other systems. The most significant is states that uh, state Medicaid programs that may be using section or were using section G or, or intend to keep using Section G, I should say, right? Yeah, it's not being cut. Yeah, they Section G informs the way they put together their case mix or their reimbursement system for the Medicaid patient. And so those states will need to have a optional state assessment. And it could be that some of the states just weren't ready for some of this or weren't monitoring it maybe as closely. But that's an implication not only for states, but most importantly for us, those of us listening to this podcast, because we have to figure out a way to get that information. So that was kind of a big tentacle uh, in itself. So so this move had a lot of moving part. And it's, of course, not over yet. We're still kind of getting used to it. We're just moving through that first month. It's true. And, and getting used to it, I think, is a nice way of putting it. I'm glad you're one of our advocates because you're rephrasing it a little nicer than I would because we're still seeing a lot of ripple effect, errors, ongoing glitches in systems. It really wasn't a clean transition. A lot of the EMR vendors, for whatever reason, weren't prepared 
shared or the files they received weren't accurate. I don't know what it was, but there's a lot of ongoing issues. The other thing that was concerning, and we still hear from a lot of people, how many people waited until October to figure out what the changes were. Shocking number of saying, you know, we figured we'd wait and when it happened, it happened. And unfortunately, that's problematic with as many changes as there were. I would agree. I am astounded and I've been doing nursing home issues for almost 30 years. I am astounded by those in our sector who say, well, I'll wait and see if it happens. And I guess because I'm hyper close as a lobbyist, as an advocate, you know, dealing with the public policy, I'm, I feel like, you know, we communicate so much. Hey, here's where CMS is moving. You know, it may not be the actual day that they say they're going to do it. And for example, the G to GG move was going to be done just about pre-COVID. And for many reasons, CMS pulled back, uh, but they were, they signaled they were going to do it. The handwriting was on the wall for G to GG because of GG's part uh, stemming from the impact and, you know, all the other post-acute care settings. So yeah, I'm always kind of astounded when people say, well, I'll wait and see when it happens. And, you know, all the trade associations, all the groups have been communicating with their members all year that, hey, this is coming. Here's the education. You know, the EHR vendors have had a lot of trouble. It's not been an easy transition. And, and I think a lot of that is because we're on the precipice of a change. And the change is that nursing homes are really more and more and more and more, more significantly dependent on their software, more dependent on their electronic health record. And I don't know that CMS is always recognizing this. And what I mean by that is one cannot change software really quickly, rewrite it, put it out there, test it, get the results of the test, and then make the changes that they need to do. That cannot be done in a day or days. You know, that's weeks, that's months. And even though my organization, Avion, has been telling and informing CMS for many, many years, you've got to give development lead time, you've got to give development lead time. And sometimes they do. But on this one, I think we're really on the precipice of a change where CMS need to realize that changes this significant are going to need more of a recognition that IT plays a significant role here in the lives of the nursing facility operators and they need the time. And it's unfortunately does not play well with the bureaucratic kind of rulemaking related timeframes where CMS kind of says, okay, here it is. And we're going to drib and drab, you know, the draft final. <laughs> it's not final, but it's a draft final. Yeah, kind of is, you know, you think it's final, right? And you don't know when the next draft final is actually coming. They're not working on a consistent schedule. And we've communicated with them about that. So I think that we're due for some changes. They're recognizing that this is not a J Raven paper-based thing anymore that this is. And CMS and HHS have been, they're encouraging nursing facilities to move there electronically, even though there's no mandate uh, and no funding for it, but they still are encouraging it. So if they're going to encourage it, they're going to need to reflect that in their operations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and the, the crazy thing is just past some difficult changes, people are trying to accommodate to them. And then I always think is this as the, we're six months away from the next proposed rule. So we've got a little bit of time to, to really make things happen and smooth the path so that we can start accommodating the next changes that will come. So crazy stuff. So let's get to something that's a little more fun. Do you remember the show, I Dream a Genie? Oh, I think everybody our age does. I, I love that show, but I want you to see yourself walking on the beach and finding a bottle. You rub that bottle, the genie pops out, right? And that genie is going to grant you three wishes related to the skilled nursing facility sector. So with that in mind, what would be your three wishes and why? It's a neat question. Okay, so I can't wish for a million dollars. 
for me personally. All right. So yeah, I do have some wishes for the sector that I actually have devoted my career to and passionately advocate for. Yeah. And the first one, I'm going to go with the money. I'm going to say I would wish for adequate funding for this sector. Yeah. I've been, as I mentioned, I've been doing this a long time, multiple decades. And we just, as everyone listening knows, I don't even have to say the words. We are primarily underfunded. We are the redheaded stepchild. We're always the sector left out when there's reform for other sectors like good reform. You know, they, oh, they always, oh, we didn't know what to do about long-term care. Oh, we didn't know what to do. So we didn't do anything, you know, that really is tiresome. And actually, you know, we're beyond that. I mean, the acute care system is dependent on the post-acute care system. To get back to your question, I would wish for adequate funding. I don't know exactly how much that needs to be. It's not millions though, it's billions. And that's a toughie if we had to talk realities with Congress and all that, especially in light of what we're facing down right now in the nursing facility sector is that nurse aid staffing proposed rule, which would require a certain level of RNs and a certain level of, of nurse aid. But now my second wish, maybe it's going to be a little bit of a wild card. I'm curious if you're going to even know where I'm going. I would wish for a different perception of, and I'll, I'll limit it to nursing homes, a different perception of, of the from the public of nursing homes. You know, I've been a lobbyist. You like that one? Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I tell this story often that when I first came to, you know, I've been doing nursing home lobbying before I came to Washington, but when I first came to Washington, it was doing it with Congress going down there. Sometimes it's a little hard to get them to talk to us about nursing home issues. And as the years went by, I found that members of Congress became more interested in what I was talking about when they would maybe start the conversation after I introduced myself by saying, my mother needs a facility in X state. Can you recommend a few facilities to me? You know, when that issue became personal to them, their perceptions changed. It wasn't just that ugly facility down the road, whatever they thought about it, but it became personal. And it once they got into that facility, they understood, you know, better what was going on there. And I, I wish for all the public to understand and see the good that we're doing. That so would be awesome. That would be my second one. I think we do great. I love that. And I think we do great work. I think it is underappreciated. I think we're relegated to take residents that, that have nowhere else to go. There's little to no funding. And then we're scrutinized, maybe over scrutinized for the care that we provide with as little as we're given to provide that care. It's one of those phenomena I've never figured out how we can relegate groups of people to our facilities, give minimal funding at that, underfund, and then expect a phenomenal outcome. And when I look back at my career, I've seen facilities do incredible things with very little, very little. So really like that one. Good. We can be very resourceful, but we shouldn't have to continue being that way, right? Now, I would think, you know, earlier in my career when I'd hear, especially about the funding piece, going back to your funding, which kind of works in the perception, you have Medicaid funding, which most people feel is substandard, just isn't enough to really provide the care that residents need. And then you have Medicare funding that is substantially more on a per diem. And the message has been consistent that your Medicare shouldn't be offsetting the cost of your Medicaid. There's two separate systems. But if you don't have some of those skilled residents or you don't have specialty programs that receive uh, exceptional funding for Medicaid, it's almost impossible to successfully run a skilled nursing facility. And one of the concerns I have, I worked in metropolitan areas and a lot of rural areas, is a lot of times in those rural areas, that skilled nursing facility is a major employer. And it's the only thing that allows those residents to stay in their communities near their family and friends. It, it is the only place to be. And yet we're not necessarily recognizing that as a good thing. It's just a nursing home. And that's sad. And it's sad. It's the center of healthcare in that community. But we, you know, we get what we pay for. I don't know if it's tied into, as humans, our inability to deal with aging. And, you know, I don't 
no, that was a wish. And my third wish, Mar, uh, is to have technology in, and I'll, I'll just limit it to nursing homes, more technology in nursing homes. I think this is something many of us have been desiring. Um, and it kind of goes back to, you know, do you have the margin to pay for it? And I don't just mean an electronic health record. I mean, bringing in monitoring, remote monitoring, all the bells and whistles that we're hearing more and more about, we see, you know, those need to come into the, you know, we shouldn't be left out of technology. COVID really brought uh, a light onto the ability of just a simple little technology called telehealth that's been around a long time. Uh, the ability to bring in expertise from doctors or therapists or other nurses, you know, after hours or to provide services. COVID brought that ability in and really showed what a success that could be. And, you know, furthermore, over here, like on the left hand, we have CMS undertaking really interesting uh, experiments with waivers, for example, hospital at home in bringing a lot of hospital level services to someone in their home utilizing technology. Well, if we're endeavoring to do that, why can't we bring similar technologies into the nursing facility, especially in light of this nurse staffing proposed rule, which we know is going to set up for failure in a way because it's requiring a certain level of RNs and nurse aides, and those staff just are either not there or very difficult to recruit. And then the other problem of not having the funding to really fulfill that recruiting. Well, here we've got various types of technologies out there that we're deploying, say, in assisted living with sensors that are in a person's room that can indicate to a centralized place, you know, that the person fell or didn't get up to go to the restroom as, as expected that they do every night. Or, you know, we've got so many, and I'm just barely scratching the surface, so many of these areas out there. Well, why not bring some of that in for our most precious folks in our society, those that are ill and need care 24-7? It could lessen the need for all the workforce that is just not there. Uh, so anyway, I'm getting on a bit of a soapbox there, Mark. No, no, no I, love, I love it because I think the points you made are very thoughtful and well thought out and they build on each other because the technology, the, the advantages that we could provide in our sites are based on perception, which really drives our funding, I think. So if we could change those things, it really begs to ask, what could we accomplish in our sites if we were seen as that critical player in, in the continuum of care? So love your points. Love your points. So I'm going to ask you one more thing, just to give us your best advice for SNF operators right now. What's your best advice? I've been asked this question before, and I'm going to stick with the answer I've given before. And my answer is learn what I call the language of quality. Quality measures has a whole vocabulary to itself, you know, numerators, denominators, exclusions, formulas. And I'm talking specifically about the quality measures that CMS has on Care Compare and Five Star. It's a different language when you start delving into those. It's not easy. I know QRM has done quite a bit to help educate not only its clients, not only your clients, but the field out there. And no doubt, we don't learn what I call quality measure language or the vocabulary. We don't you know, learn it in college or in high school or anything like that. Not, not even close. Not even yeah. close. And it really just came about, well, I'd say in the last 13, 14 years. So administrators, I don't know if they get a course in that or not in their training programs, but whatever. I say that you've got to embrace quality measures and to embrace it because that is going to be what I call the currency going forward. As an example, CMS said, I think it was last year, that they have a goal of having all Medicare beneficiaries in an accountable care arrangement by 2030, by the year 2030. What does that mean? That means that all the beneficiaries that are in original Medicare under fee-for-service, various programs, CMS wants those 
those beneficiaries to be in some kind of accountable care arrangement. Maybe move them to Medicare Advantage. We already have half of all Medicare beneficiaries. We just met that, right? Half of all Medicare beneficiaries are already under a Medicare Advantage plan. That's considered accountable care. And so CMS is going to, and it's 2030, it's not that far away. It's just seven years. You know, this environment of accountable care has really hit us full, you know, just in the last couple of years. And the reason I'm linking the two is when you're in an accountable care arrangement or you've got to answer to a referral partner, like a hospital, they're going to want to see your quality metric in order to share them, to talk about them, to sell your facility to that referral partner, or I would even argue to families sometimes. You're going to have to understand your metric and the vocabulary and what all goes into them. And it's not easy. It takes a little bit of time, but it's doable, very doable. That's what I really push now because that's what I call the currency of tomorrow and the future. It's all going to be about what did you do for your patients in terms of outcomes? And you're going to need to be able to explain it and understand it so that you can change it, so that you can sell it, uh, so that you can have an impact on it. That is really my best advice uh, right now. I think it's awesome advice. And it, like you said, we've done a ton of training. And it's really the tip of the iceberg because when I look at it, especially those quality measures that are more far reaching that are involved in several quality programs, the, you know, the value-based purchasing, the QRP, the five-star, you can look at it and say it's not fair, which some providers continue to say, this, these measures aren't fair. Well, they're not fair to all of us then, which makes it kind of fair because we're all being measured the same way. So I think embracing them is the way to do it, learning it and recognizing that is your ticket or like you said, your currency in the future to enable you to be involved in different payer contracting, those type of things. And I actually, not too long ago, saw a facility that really struggled with their survey, struggled with their staffing because their quality measures were at a five star. They were able to get into a payer system that they would not have been able to get into otherwise. There was an exception made because the, the rule was you had to be a three star. Your five stars had to be at least a three star, but they made an exception because the quality measures spoke to the value that they were receiving out of the facility. So I love that advice. I think it's great advice. So thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Mark, it's been a hoot. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. You bet. And the rest of you, if you keep listening, we'll keep talking. Come back, visit us again. Bye. Bye.